Thank you, brother. Great to have you back up praying. Randy is just coming off of a sabbatical last year, so we'll be hearing a lot more from him, so we're excited for that. Isabel likes it, and Zach likes it. Yes, and Todd, great job last week, brother. Thank you for preaching. Uh, Todd gave uh, the sermon last Sunday, and uh, that was the first Sunday morning you've done. It was wonderful. Thank you, brother. It's going to take him a year to get over it, so he's on sabbatical now, and we're trusting that'll be great. Love you, brother. Um, we, this morning, are going to begin a, a short series of uh, sermons that'll last about a month called Jesus on Money. Uh, ordinarily, you know, if this is, your, this is your church, we almost always sort of go with the grain of Scripture, meaning we start at the first verse in a book and we just work our way all the way through that book. We believe that's the best way to give uh, a church family all that Scripture says, because it's easy if you uh, do it different ways to sort of pick the topics that you're interested in and so uh, and leave others out. And so ordinarily we just start like the last year, Mark 1-1 and worked our way all the way through the book. But there are times in which it's important to have a concentrated uh, little season of a few weeks to look at something uh, against the grain in which we consider a topic and what scripture says about that in several different books. So we're gonna do that together the next couple of weeks and think about Jesus uh, on money. Um, this first Sunday, I'd like us to think about some things that John the Baptist taught related to money. And the reason for that is that John's ministry was about laying the groundwork for Jesus. In the first century, he was preparing people to be ready to receive the message and the person of Christ. And my hope is, as we consider this morning some things that John said in relationship to finances, that we would then be well prepared for the next couple of weeks to hear from Christ. So if you would look with me at Luke chapter 3, and if you don't have a Bible with you, then underneath the chairs in front of you there are some blue Bibles, and you can turn to page 500 in those Bibles where you'll find some things that John is going to tell us. Two years ago, uh, we did the same thing in January. I think January is a good time to consider finances because uh, so many of us are considering things we want to do different this year. And so maybe in 2023, there's an openness to considering uh, your finances. So two years ago, we looked at the book of Proverbs, and we looked at four priorities that God gives in that book in relationship to money. Those were um, work, give, save, and spend. Very simple. Work, give, save, spend. So that series was really, really hands-on, street-level, practical. If you missed it or uh, if you just want a refresher, you could jump on the podcast and go back there. In this series, I want to do something really different. So rather than look at those very, very, very immensely, immediately practical issues of what we should do with money, I want us to take a step back and instead consider some of the heart issues behind how we work, give, save, and spend. And so it may feel initially less practical, but I hope it will give us sort of the theological groundwork or foundation through which we can then process how we work, give, save, and spend. 
We're going to consider what John the Baptist says this morning as it relates to our hearts because that's what drives what we do with money. So if you would, look with me at Luke 3, and we'll start in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Atria and Traconitis, and Lucanus, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke begins this third chapter of his gospel like the expert historian that he was. And he's telling us something really, really, really important happened at this time. And so he works hard to date it by dating the rulers who were leading in that period. Most likely, the year was 29 AD. That year, God spoke to this man named John, and he told him to go out with a message and to proclaim it boldly and that people would come to be baptized. John's arrival was a big deal for many reasons. It was a big deal in part because it fulfilled biblical prophecy. One prophecy was around 30 years old, another around 700 years old. But the main thing I'd love you to see is that everything in the Old Testament had been building, 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 building to the era in which John was going to begin. This is a bit cheesy, but I, I think it captures the idea, so be kind to me. It's the start of a new year, all right? So if Jesus was the highway to heaven, so the opposite of that old song. If Jesus was the highway to heaven, then John the Baptist is the on-ramp, and he's guiding people, the Israelites in the first century, on how to get on the highway with Christ. Now, the content of John's message was that he called people to repent. That was a basically his message that Jesus is coming, so repent. Repentance then and repentance today are not, is not a popular topic. Most people don't like to be told, you've messed up and you need to repent. And yet that's what John came saying. Repentance is a, a turning it's a turning in two directions. It's a turning from a lifestyle of behaviors that are contrary to what God commands, and it's turning toward God. It's turning from things we know we ought not to do or haven't done things we are to do and turning toward Christ, asking him for strength that we would walk in a new way of life. It's an agreement that what God says is true and right and good and that we failed to live that way, turning from that old life to a new kind of life. Now, if you look in verse 3, you'll see as John came preaching that, that there was a whole lot to it. There's a lot going on. John addressed a problem 
That problem was sin. Brothers and sisters, sin is the things we do and don't do that are contrary to the will of God. And the reason sin matters so much is that God is a holy God and we're made to know him and love him and walk with him. But sin is in the way. It impedes that walk with God. And so John came preaching a message in which there was a solution. That solution is repentance. That if we would confess our sin, that God would be faithful and just to forgive it. And then he gave a demonstration of repentance, namely baptism. That they, by virtue of showing that they had in fact responded to that message, would be baptized. Now here's the fascinating thing about that. And we sort of have to undo some of what we think when we think of baptism. Because as Christians in the year 2023, we think of baptism as what happens there on a Sunday as someone has become a Christian. But John wasn't talking about that. His baptism was different. And here's what's really interesting about this. In John's day, until he came calling on people to be baptized, Israelites, the Israelites didn't get baptized. There is no command in the Old Testament that a Jew follow God by being baptized. It's simply not there. And so it wasn't something that they did. But, however, it had become common practice by the point of John's day that if you were a non-Jew, if you were ethnically a Gentile and you wanted to follow God, you wanted to follow the God of the Old Testament, then you had to be baptized. And so if you were a Jew, no baptism required, but if you were a Gentile, baptism was required. And so imagine John out in the desert preaching this very confrontational message that Jesus is coming, and if you want to be ready for Jesus, then you've got to do what those dirty, nasty, hostile people toward God, the Gentiles do. You've got to get baptized. This would have been extremely offensive because it's saying to them, you have need of repentance and washing, just like they do. Very offensive message. But it was good news. The next few verses will explain why. Look with me at verse 4. It says this, And as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, if you look, most of that in your Bibles is indented and in quotations. That's because this is a, a direct quote from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, some 700 years before, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the last prophet who spoke directly about this in this way said 
that eventually the Messiah is going to come and his way must be prepared. And so Isaiah was talking about John. Isaiah said John would come to do that, that John would prepare people for the arrival of the Messiah. Now, understand, if you look back through that quotation, that when John came, he didn't come out in the desert sitting on top of a big John Deere. He wasn't riding an earth mover. He didn't literally go through the desert and smooth out a highway. These words are not literal, they're figurative. John came preaching that receptive Jews would be ready for the long-awaited Messiah. John came to till the hearts of people that they might respond and be ready for Jesus. He came to, to move out of the way the obstacles of sin that would impede people from responding to Jesus' gospel. Again, his message was confrontational, but it was a message of mercy, a message of grace. Friends, anytime God says something hard to us in his word, something that stings a bit, it's always for our good. It's always that the boulders of sin might be removed, that we might walk on a level road with Christ. Anytime we turn from sin and trust in Jesus, even though it's painful to come to terms with our own failures, then we are being restored again and again and again. And so it's pain with a purpose. As one of your elders, I can say that on behalf of all the elders, we hope that this year, everybody who calls this church home would be someone who regularly practices repentance. Repentance isn't something that begins the Christian life and then you're done with it. It wants to be something that marks our normal daily life. If it's not your habit, then you might consider, brothers and sisters, that this year would be a great time, today would be a great time, to begin saying to God at the end of the day, God, where have I not followed through in obedience to you today? And then to give space for your conscience to be pricked as God brings things to mind. And then as you confess them to him, then 1 John tells us that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's great news. It's good to have the boulders of sin lifted out of the way that we would walk with Christ. Now, one issue John was especially concerned about was that there would be a genuineness to repentance, that there would be a genuineness to repentance. He didn't want people to come out and hear him and mouth words and get dunked in the water and then go on and live just like they'd always been living. Because when we do that, we show that the repentance wasn't real. Without heart change, apart from a real commitment to, in the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, live differently after repentance, then we show that repentance isn't really repentance. Repentance must be demonstrated 
in a change. Or it's a fraudulent form of repentance. If I could put it this way, if I did something yesterday that was sinful and offensive and hurt my wife, not that I'd ever do that, right, dear? Yeah. And if I then went to her and said, Jill, I sinned against God and against you by doing X, would you forgive me? And she graciously says, yes. And then the next day, today, I do the exact same thing. Monday, the same thing. Tuesday, the same thing. Wednesday, the same thing. Then I am demonstrating that what I said to her on Saturday, I didn't mean. It's not that after we repent, we perfectly obey, but it is that after we repent, we do the work in the power of the Spirit to struggle to obey, to turn when we're tempted and to respond differently. And so John, as he thought about this massive crowd of people coming out to him to be baptized, he was immensely concerned that they not have a phony form of repentance, that their religion, if you will, would be real. And so he's going to poke that in the next paragraph. Look at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. That doesn't have the bite to us that it would have to them. He essentially just called them sons of Satan. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Those are hard words. But they're designed to be healing words if they're heeded. You see, in John's day, it was common that people believed, because I'm ethnically Jewish, then by simply by virtue of my ethnicity, I've already been made right with God. They presumed ethnicity was enough to defer the consequences for sin and put them on a right playing field with God. But they were wrong. That has never been true. God will have a people for his glory. But that people must be a repentant people. They must be people who turn from sin and trust in him. And if not, John, looking around in the desert, pointed to stones and he said, God will raise those up and make them children of Abraham. You see, to respond rightly to God, we must really repent. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you're counting on anything to make you right with God, other than his grace given through your placing faith and repentance in him, 
If you find yourself saying, I've always been a Christian, or I grew up with believing parents, or look at my moral, ethical living, I'm better than the others around me, surely that makes me enough. Friend, that's simply not how it works. The only way to be right with God is to believe God and to turn from sin and trust in him. Now, John presses this into the hearts of his hearers with a really weird phrase in verse 8. It's a phrase we don't use hardly ever today, and I hope this is the start of us recovering it. He says in verse 8 that they're to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's a weird phrase. What does that mean? Well, all around the valley right now are lemon trees. And what is on those lemon trees today? Lemons. You're a smart bunch. Why do lemon trees produce the fruit of lemons? Well, it's because that's what they are. They produce after their kind. Their, their identity is that they are lemon trees, and therefore, they produce lemons. They reveal externally what's true about them internally. Let me say that again. They reveal externally, fruit, what's true about them internally. John is simply saying, friend, if you're going to be ready for Jesus, if you're going to walk with God, then what you're saying is true as you repent, what you're saying is true about your disposition internally. It's got to be revealed externally. Or it's not real repentance. Lemon trees produce lemons. Repentant people look different than they did before they repented. Back to my example. If yesterday I sinned against my wife, and I said, Jill, I'm sorry, I sinned against God and you. Would you forgive me? And she says, yes. Then what does that look like today? Well, it looks like when I wake up, before I even get out of bed, I say, God, would you help me today to live a life of obedience? Would you give me a soft, loving, kind, sweet leadership toward my wife? That today I would love her like Christ loves the church. And then when in that temptation there's a drifting back toward the same behavior, it's a recognition, God, I don't want to do that again. I want to treat her well today. That's bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Lemon trees produce lemons. Christians are not sinless, perfect people. But they are people whose fruit, whose actions, look more and more and more Christ-like. Now, what in the world 
does all of this have to do with money? I'm glad you asked. In just a minute, I'll read our final paragraph for today. And as I do, I want to encourage you to pay careful attention to the examples of fruit bearing that John gives. That is, the crowd's going to say to John, John, that's a hard word, but we want to repent. We want to respond. What should we do? What fruit should we be especially attentive to? Does that make sense? He's going to list multiple groups of people, and I want you to notice what those groups have in common. What fruit bearing did he expect? Verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. I find this to be incredibly fascinating. Three different groups of people, all saying, if we need to repent, and we should expect that repentance to then bear fruit of our lives looking different, then where should we look? How will we know if the repentance is real? How will we know if there's spiritual growth and change happening? John addressed the same thing with all three. Look at the crowds. He says, if you have more than enough, then share your clothes and food with those who don't have more than enough. Number two, tax collectors, don't steal from people. The way taxes uh, were done in this time period was that the tax person came to your house. Can you imagine? Some of us have gotten some of those letters. But they came to the house, knocked on the door, said, this is your tax bill. And then the tax collector was allowed to take anything on top of what you owed that he could get out of you. And he would pocket that money. John's saying, knock that off. The tax is enough. Don't take advantage of people. And then the soldiers, don't use your power, your authority, to extort people. Instead, be content. Brothers and sisters, what we see here is apparently there is an intimate connection between real repentance and resources. Repentance, we might say, recalibrates resources. Genuine repentance will reveal itself in the transformed use of money 
and possessions. Let me say that again. Genuine repentance will reveal itself in a transformed use of money and possessions. Now, I think that makes total sense, even though it's not what we might intuitively first think about. There are so many different areas of life that John could have pressed here or here or here or here, but he pressed the same thing with all of them. He said, if you're really being changed by God, then you're going to find that showing up in your wallet. That makes sense. Because God is after our hearts, and our hearts show that we're being changed by God when we begin to reflect His heart. You see, God has a heart for the poor. He's always disposed predisposed to those in need. God is always honest. God doesn't extort. And God is the ultimate giver. Jesus Christ gave himself to pay our sin debt and then credited to us, our balance, his righteousness. You see, when we give, when we are honest, when we don't extort, we are reflecting the very heart of God. As we become more compassionate towards those with less, as we become increasingly honest in our financial dealings, as we become people who refuse to use any position that we have, to stand on the neck of someone else financially, then we demonstrate that God's grace is, in fact, transforming us into different people. Because all that garbage is the kind of thing sinners naturally do. It takes a supernatural God transforming people like us to be prying our close-fisted possessions and resources, and money, and opening that hand that we might hold everything that God gives us loosely, being willing to share, happy to give. Inauthentic repentance might show itself in some habits, like going to church, but inauthentic repentance rarely shows up in our wallets. We are unlikely to try to impress God by refusing to raise our standard of living simply because we got a raise in order to leave a little bit more margin to give to others who have need. It's simply not the thing we do. We're unlikely to try to impress others through what we give in an offering. We're unlikely to stop cutting corners at work and start being honest in ways that mean we make less money unless we've come face to face in repentance with the God who forgives and the God who transforms. When we come to see that God does not hoard 
when we are washed truly by his grace, then that grace begins to flow out of us to others, even in our resources. Church, as those three groups of people, if we look at each one of them, as they approached John and said, what do we do? What does fruit bearing in keeping with repentance look like? What does a Christian tree appear to produce? John could have said, your speech will be different. Your sexuality will be different. You'll quit getting angry over things that don't matter. Your greed in the sense of uh, jealousy towards someone else's popularity. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. But he said none of those things. He said what you do with your money will change. Why? Because genuine repentance will reveal itself in a transformed use of money and possessions. That's the easiest place to see it, John's saying, because it's so completely unnatural to us. This makes sense, doesn't it? It's like Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Church, as we lean into a new year together, I pray that our hearts would be white hot for God. I pray that we'd be serious about making disciples and helping churches. I pray that we would want every single obstacle of sin that would trip us up from living in close fellowship with Jesus. That we'd want that removed. I pray we'd be a repentant people. A people who are quickly recognizing when we've not obeyed, confessing it to him, joyfully embracing the gift of fresh forgiveness, and then helping each other to walk in a bearing fruit in keeping with repentance kind of way. How will we know if those kinds of things are actually happening? You know, one of the things that's difficult about real Christianity, biblical spirituality, is that there's, it is much harder to quantify, isn't it? I mean, think of if your goal this year is to lose weight. It's not hard to figure out if that's happening. You get on a scale and it objectively tells you. Or think this year if your goal is to get closer to finishing your degree. Well, how do you tell? Can you check off more classes as being done? But how do you tell if you're growing spiritually? If, if repentance was real, that's harder to quantify. But John says, if you tend to do this with what you have, then do you find yourself more quickly doing this? Are you more likely to lend a vehicle to somebody who needs it? Are you more likely to give away a bike 
to an international student? Are you more bothered that there's a table, there's, there's a seat at the table that nobody's at and food you're throwing away? Are you more bothered by the homeless person and more predisposed to stop and have a conversation and give away a little food? Are you more quick to give to the needs of the body and less likely to be consumed with self? That's how you tell. John says, you want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? There's the spot. Because, friend, the the person apart from the intervention of God, that is not what they do with money. As forgiven people, let's consider this year being people who happily live below our means so we can give away a little more to others. Let's open our homes and apartments and condos and dorm rooms because God has opened our hearts. Let's never rip somebody off so we can make a few more bucks. Let's treasure Jesus as supreme because he has opened up the storehouses of heaven and given us the resources of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. If you want to see if repentance is real, that's where you look. And if it hasn't been, then today is a fresh start. The gospel is open to you. We stand on me and let's pray. Before I pray for us, to take a moment to interact with God about what you've heard. Father, we thank you for this passage. It is a hard text. And yet it reveals to, some, to us something in a, just a few paragraphs that's so critical to come to see and that is communicated across the Bible in so many different ways. That is that we have an ongoing need for repentance and you are a gracious God who loves to forgive. And so I pray this morning for both my brothers and sisters in Christ here 
and non-Christians who need to repent for the very first time. That, Father, we would know the things to turn from and that we would long to trust and put faith and confidence in you. Lord, would you change our hearts? Would you give us a new disposition that we might this year aim above everything else to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Lemon trees produce lemons. We Christians want to ask that in us you would produce the fruit of right living. Living that glorifies you and helps people. And perhaps the easiest, most visible, external way we can see it is in what we do with what we have. Would you make us, God, a generous people? A people ready and happy to share. Open-handed, open-hearted. And that like the very first Christians we read about in the book of Acts, that their generosity to each other overflowed into generosity to the community and changed the world. God, would you do that in us? We thank you for your grace that is available to us. We praise you that Christ came as the ultimate giver and that he is now in us that we might live through him. Make us like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, our benediction this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 13. I hope it's an encouragement to you as you aim to live in light of what we've talked about. It says, finally rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and of peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.